You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock. Happy New Year and welcome back to the In Pursuit of Development podcast. Today we delve into a topic that has captivated the attention of geopolitical analysts, economists and policymakers alike. China's burgeoning relationship with Africa. This relationship has been characterized by significant economic investment, trade and infrastructure development, with China emerging as Africa's largest trading partner and a major player in the continent's evolving economic landscape. In recent years, we've seen an influx of Chinese involvement in African industries ranging from mining and construction to manufacturing and retail. This has been accompanied by an ambitious drive to develop Africa's infrastructure with projects that span roads, railways, ports, airports and telecommunication networks. But the ties between China and Africa extend far beyond economics. We're witnessing a dynamic cultural exchange, burgeoning diplomatic activities and even aid and military support. However, these activities have not been without controversy, igniting debates over so-called debt trap diplomacy and resource exploitation. My guest today is Joshua Eisenman, who is an associate professor of politics in the Keogh School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on the political economy of China's development and foreign relations with the United States and the Global South, particularly the African continent. Together with David Shin, Josh has recently co-authored a new book entitled China's Relations with Africa, A New Era of Strategic Engagement. We begin our discussion by unpacking the concept of the community of shared future for mankind, which has become a cornerstone of Chinese foreign policy under President Xi Jinping. Josh and I explore whether this represents an alternative to the liberal Western order or a Sinocentric vision of global governance. Thereafter, we discuss the role and impact of China's Belt and Road Initiative and the importance of the African continent viewed from Beijing. If you enjoy listening to this show and believe in the power of the conversations we are having, I would be very grateful if you could hit subscribe, rate the show, leave a comment, and consider sharing the podcast on your social media channels. Let your friends and colleagues know about the show so that they too can be a part of this journey with us. Great to have you on the show, Josh. Welcome. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Let's start with something that I've been thinking a little bit about, Josh. And one of the things is that Beijing has this tendency of coming up with these strange-sounding, catchy buzzwords or phrases like harmonious society or, or something to do with peace and love. And, and there's this one that has got a lot of attention of late which I'd like you to please help us better understand, which is this community of shared future for mankind. Now, my take on these is that it is often on purpose formulated very vaguely. It is often very difficult to really pin down what these terms mean. Like my take on this is that 
maybe Beijing is just throwing out these terms and hoping, you know, we latch on to one. And so anyway, let's get started with this community of shared future for mankind. What does it mean in your view? Wow. I mean, that's a big question because what you're talking about is the kind of overarching theory that Xi Jinping has put forward in trying to understand essentially global affairs, right? Um, and so it's, it's, it's this overarching theory, which is held up by a variety of different pillars. And those pillars, you might know them, they're the, um, the new uh, development initiative and then the strategic initiative. I for, I'm, I'm, I'm running into a blank. Global security, global civilization, and global development. Yes. So these can be seen as kind of the three pillars holding up the community. And what the community is, it's kind of this relational framework. So it's not based on laws or international law or rule of law. It's a kind of Sinocentric world order in which building relations helps one to facilitate one's position. And the goal is to expand relations in the community. And China is, of course, the head of the community. Communities have leaders. China is the leader of the community. Um, and other countries then join the community in which they gain benefits from the community and then, you know, basically uh, abide by China's core interests, right? And so there's this kind of exchange going on here. Sometimes it's actually economic. We've seen this. I think the Belt and Road is certainly part of the community, right? And we can talk more about that since we've just held the Belt and Road Forum. And the community is mentioned all over the place, right? So, so the community has these various aspects, you know, military, uh, strategic, political, economic, um, and civilizational. And it's a kind of a, a Sinocentric Chinese-based world order. And one can consider it maybe in juxtaposition to the what in the West we like to call the rules-based international order. Yeah, that's also you know how I see it. It's because a lot of these countries, including China, but also India and the others, are increasingly adopting this global South language. And there is a perception in many parts of the world, in non-Western parts of the world, that the Western order is just inadequate. It's just not going to promote development in these regions. It is unfair. And the way I see this, this concept of the community is that China and Beijing is saying, this is an alternative world order. It is more inclusive. It is more equitable. It'll benefit you more than what these, you know, exclusionary policies of the West has not been able to do. I think that's right. But here's where I think it runs upon the rocks a bit, right? And that's all of these problems, you know, BRI has been facing because, when you think about the Belt and Road Initiative, one of the objectives is exactly what you just said, which is to show the world that there's another way for development and to uh, take this global finance, which has been so skewed towards the West, and make it available on a larger scale to the global South. And that's what BRI is all about. The problem is that BRI hasn't exactly generated the kind of results that China's wanted in terms of returns. And you know, another part of what BRI was about was using uh, China's you know large amount of reserves um, to earn a better return than UST bills, right? And that hasn't worked necessarily. So, um, and we could talk about all the kind of promises and perils of BRI, but ultimately, if BRI is not successful, that's a real hit against the community because it suggests that this approach is not sustainable. And at this point, given the debt burdens in some countries, you know, I think as well as anybody else, um, the question of how, how much more can you use a debt-driven program in order to stimulate growth in the global south? I'd like us to discuss a bit more about the extent to which these ideas are catching on. 
because my impression is that ecological civilization or harmonious society, shared future of mankind, there is considerable overlap with some of the other terms that we use in the West, sustainable development or climate related you know, addressing climate-related challenges. So it's not like they're totally different. It's just that the way in which these are packaged, they don't seem to be adopted, at least, by a lot of the other countries. The West, of course, dismisses them. And I don't hear talk about shared future or whatever in Africa or in any other part of the world. So thinking of these terms from the perspective of policymakers in Beijing... How do you think they go about it? I mean, what is the purpose? You know, would they be able to uh, adopt a different strategy that would gain, that would get all of these terms even more traction and influence? You know, it's very interesting. I mean, from a broader perspective, having just been in China and having extensive meetings with Chinese government interlocutors, the extent to which everybody was trying to define the relationship between the U.S. in one way or another um, also came across, right? And so I, I do feel you're right. And there is this tendency to try to create these overarching terms to try to define things and then go from there, right? To define it in one way and then uh, move from that position. But I do think your point is also well taken that these terms are not necessarily catching on around the world, right? You remember the Belt and Road used to be called the One Belt, One Road or OBOR. That was a bit of a mouthful, right? And so, you know, there is a branding effort here or a propaganda effort that's also underway. And so one of the questions is, you know, how do you frame something for both the Chinese audience and you know, countless foreign audiences, right? That's a, you know, that's a tough order, right? You know, then they rebranded it as BRI, you know, and then you've got all of these other, you know, sub kind of pillars that we talked about a moment ago. So there's definitely an effort to construct a kind of, kind of a broader framework for China's engagement, right? And I think this is part of what China sees as its major power engagement with the world, right? It wants to put forth ideas. It wants to be on the center stage. It doesn't want to simply accept the world order and benefit from it. It's, it wants to actually influence change and, and kind of develop that world order in ways that make it, you know, to meet its specific needs. And so that's a, an evolution, right? Yeah. You know, I was also thinking about how in the last, say, 15, 20 years, China's place in the world has increased its role and influence its military might, its technological prowess, China is everywhere. And so while China or Beijing's power is increasing, I also think there have been very subtle moves to tone down any comparison with the United States. You know, you would hear Chinese leaders often say, oh, we don't want to be the number one country in the world. We don't aim to rule the world. We're just a promising nation. We are the largest developing country. I feel that some of these terms that are launched, including these initiatives that we just mentioned, civilization, security, development, is in a way of toning down its military might, saying, we have soft power, we have good ideas, we want to live in peace and harmony, we support UN peacekeeping operations, we are not threatening the world. Would you agree? Because I think just the fact that China has been a very important contributor to these UN peacekeeping operations is in line with this, this kind of argument, wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would agree. I mean, they're definitely trying to put forward 
a group of ideas that they think or might be considered like globalization 2.0 and that they're going to be the leaders of that effort and they're trying to define what that looks like um, and set up a kind of uh, a bunch of pillars or a bunch of baskets of ideas which they can then contribute into and and do things under those auspices right so you know one wonders though how much of this is a kind of facade versus actual policy right i mean that's that's a question that only time will tell right you can create all of these different initiatives but what is, what is within them right uh, how is it different from what we were doing in the past is it just a branding effort? Yeah, you know, I think some of it is just branding and rebranding existing stuff. And, you know, I never really understood the Belt and Road in many ways, because what China was doing before 2013 is what China is just doing again after 2013. It's just on a bigger scale or maybe just expanding to areas that are not just a part of the global south, even Europe, you know, or, or uh, some parts of Latin America. So. I'm not sure either about the content, but let's talk about something where we know quite a lot, and which is the infrastructure component, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative that has got a lot of attention. Now, you have infrastructure being constructed, particularly on the African continent, but also in parts of Latin America and Asia. But the Belt and Road has got a lot of attention on the African continent, perhaps not always for the right reasons, I would argue, Josh, that a lot of African leaders that I've interacted with and administrators love the infrastructure projects that the Chinese build because they say the West keeps talking while we actually do the building. And a lot of people say that the criticism of these infrastructure projects that the United States and maybe other European countries come up with is misguided because there has really not been an alternative. The West stopped building infrastructure on the African continent. So, so the very fact that there was only one major actor doing it speaks volumes for perhaps the genuine interest that, that this country has for, for the African continent. But there is also a flip side to this and increasingly, there's considerable talk about the growing debt burden that many countries who welcome Chinese investments and take these huge loans, even though they are concessional in nature, aren't able to pay back. So it's, it's a bit of a dilemma for me when I do my work. I see that some of these countries need the infrastructure, but perhaps they aren't able to afford it. And the question then is, should Beijing be saying no more often? Is, is that the problem? What is your take on the Belt and Road? Because from, from what I heard you say just now, it appears that you're not very positive about its contributions, particularly on the African continent. Well, you know, this is, this is difficult because um, like almost everything in the world, it's not clean and it's not clear cut. And there are, you know, there are contributions, but there are also burdens and problems. And so, you know, one has to be very, I guess, mindful, especially as, you know, two academics that we are, you know, to, to make sure you look at these things in the most balanced way you can. But that being said, I would say that I probably do come off on a more pessimistic note with regard to Belt and Road. And, and there's a, a few reasons why. Um, you know, one is that I think that the views that I received in 2018 and when I was in Africa that, that you may have received if they were before the pandemic don't really take into account how Belt and Road lending has essentially fallen off a cliff for the last two years, right? Um, so it doesn't, it hasn't really been going on. And that's 
largely because of COVID. I mean, uh, you know, probably, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's going to ever be able to return to the kind of heyday of 2015, 2016. And when I was in Beijing about a week and a half ago, I had, I had the coincidence of having breakfast with um, uh, a Pakistani official who was explaining to me that in the past, there was a lot more willingness to say, whatever you want to do, we're going to trust your judgment and we'll go forward with it. But now it's very hard to get somebody to sign off. And it really, you know, it's it, people are very reluctant and there's a lot of concern about viability of projects and there's a lot more scrutiny and a lot more kind of wanting to go slow than there was in the past. So this, I, I understand during the heyday, people were very excited that, you know, things were happening very quickly. But the fact that China is going to what was plastered all over Beijing was small and beautiful or a high quality Belt and Road means that um, there's a variety of, it's going to go slower, right? And so this, you know, average, you know, time of three years construction, is it going to be able to be kept up? And they may end up having to, you know, delay as they do all of this due diligence on all of these smaller projects, right? And you can imagine, you know, for every project, you have to do the due diligence. So if they're going to do a lot more smaller projects, that's going to require a lot more man hours, a lot more people on the ground. And frankly, in my interactions with Chinese interlocutors, I didn't feel like they were very confident that they could, you know, go to places like Africa and get on the ground and really judge viability very well. And so I, I'm concerned, you know, that even if it's more greener, even if it's smaller, even if it's more high tech, um, especially given the debt burdens that are already out there, I, I'm just, you know, color me skeptical that this is just going to be able to, you know, maybe if they had started out that way to begin with, right? But I think that they're in a position now they're not going to get back to the kind of lending they did. And if they want to go to this other model, it's going to be more difficult, I think, than they imagined. So I agree with you, Josh, that what has happened since the pandemic is a slowdown, that there is less money. But that I don't think is because of there not being interest or demand for this in many of these countries on the African continent. It is more of a because of the slowdown of the Chinese economy that they are not able to finance these mega projects that they were funding in Latin America and, and in Africa. It is, as you say, much more of an emphasis on small and beautiful, but also during some of these um, more recent FOCAC summits, these Forum on, on China-Africa Cooperation summits, there has been perhaps usefully because they are trying to, I mean, nobody in Beijing would say, oh, because of a slowdown, we have less money or you're not important, but maybe it's a very useful excuse to say, we want to focus on green development, you know, in tune with all this climate change, sustainable development talk. But my, my point still is that before the pandemic and even now, the projects that were undertaken under the Belt and Road, I think... And I've studied the the train, you know, the um, Nairobi-Mombasa railway. There's very little I can criticize the projects for. You could criticize perhaps the way the consultations were not done or done or who was, you know, who was consulted, you know, who gave the contract, what were the terms, et cetera. All of that you could criticize. But if you look at the projects themselves, they're actually pretty good. They're pretty solid. The roads, the... The, the buildings, the stadiums, they all are really, really good projects. 
the problem often is that, at least in my view, is that maybe people did not, whoever invited these Chinese companies did not do the homework. You know, would these actually pay off? Or, you know, it's like me asking for a loan from you, not knowing how I'm going to pay you for that in the future. But there's also here an inherent criticism of Chinese actors that they should perhaps be much more careful to get into countries knowing that perhaps they are not able to, to receive money and these countries will not be able to pay back, which then brings me to what you said about the Belt and Road. I think it has become, this is a, a 3.0 version, right? So they're actually learning, many of these Chinese institutions and, and companies, they're not perhaps willing to take that risk. And one thing that I noticed on my uh, recent trip to Kenya, and I've been studying the, uh, the railway project and also a highway project is that now it is no longer, Josh, about these big concessional loan funded projects. It's more like, oh, you know, build, operate and transfer. So a country just provides the land and the Chinese company comes and invests and make, makes all the investments, maintains, runs that project, you know, gets some revenue from it, like tolls, et cetera. And then in 25 years, that project is given back. So all of this to say that I agree that it has changed, but I think it is because many of these actors have learned from past experience. Perhaps they burnt their fingers and they're being more cautious and doing the due diligence much more like Western agencies do. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's right. Now, it's, it's, there's no doubt that the slowdown in the Chinese economy has had an impact here. However, I do believe that if these things were profitable, they would have continued to do them no matter what's going on in the Chinese economy, right? The fact that they've slowed down in doing it suggests that they think there's a problem with the sustainability of their model and that they need to go to, as you say, uh, 3.0. So um, the issue here is, I think, really one of expectations. You, through the rhetoric, you set very high expectations about what cooperation with China can bring. And sometimes, well, that can't be met in all circumstances. And, and so I think that, you know, this is, you know, part of the business environment. You know, if you, if your stock goes up 10%, but everyone thought it was going to go up 20%, you know, that's a problem, right? But if everyone thought it was going to go up five and it goes up 10, well, you know, mazel tov. So expectations, I think, when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative have been set pretty high. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's part of the issue, right? And then oftentimes the, the government who takes the loan is not the one who is forced to repay the loan, right? So, and, you know, and that is another problem that actually the Chinese flagged when we were talking to them um, as, a, as a problem, right? Um, those priorities of one administration may or may not be the priorities of the next administration. And if you've got 150 different countries that you're dealing with, I mean, there is just a lot of man hours that has to go into all of this. Um, and so we'll see what the next stage brings. I'm not, um, I'm not optimistic because the last stage prior to it doesn't seem to have been successful from a Chinese perspective. Now, I think you're right from the perspective of those who've received the infrastructure. Um, you know, yeah, that's great. Um, now they've got to go about the business of repaying the infrastructure and, you know, like issues in Laos and, and Indonesia where the ticket price is so high that locals can't ride the train you know, this is the kind of sustainability question they're going to have to grapple with. But yes, of course, it's great to build the infrastructure when others have not. And the U.S. is not in the debt financing infrastructure game, as you know, um, for good or for bad. 
right? Uh, but the World Bank is. And while China's lending has fallen off, the data I've seen suggests the World Bank is getting into the game. So I have always suggested that there's nothing wrong with using money to hire Chinese construction firms to do great work. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, you could talk about security with 5G and all that, but, but, but in principle, I see nothing wrong with that. The issue is really when you're getting in too deep with loans, and that I think we're only seeing in a few countries. So that is actually what I observed in Kenya, that a lot of the Chinese companies I was interacting with, the major, you know, big construction companies were diversifying. They were adapting to this new reality. It was not about just relying on Chinese financial institutions to fund projects, but they were actually in the, the process of uh, competing for tenders and, and, and bidding for these uh, big projects that were being funded by, by Western actors. To go back to your point about the World Bank, I think there have been many instances where Western institutions have been unwilling to take the kind of risks that the Chinese institutions were willing so let's say, you know, one country, hypothetically, a, a president says, can you build this for me? And the World Bank does due diligence and realizes that it's not very profitable. And then this president and his administration goes to China and China says, of course, we'll do it. But, you know, there, there is this idea, I would imagine, that you have to at least break even. You can't lose money. But I wonder, Josh, about the profits. How much of a profit does Beijing actually want? Because sometimes my impression is that it's like as long as it's break even, there may be other aspects that make Beijing want to go in, right? So it could be getting support for its policies in the UN or getting political support. So it's not always about the economic aspect, uh, what do you think of that? And I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the debt issue, because much of the discourse on Africa in the U.S. is colored by this allegation that China is you know, indulging in debt trap diplomacy. But most of the evidence is, is not pointing in that direction. Sure, there are some cases where debts have exceeded and some countries haven't been able to pay back, but we don't know of any instance where China has actually forcibly taken over a territory because a country hasn't been able to repay its debt to China. Yeah, these no, these are these are two you know big issues here. I mean, look, the Communist Party of China is a political organization first, so there's no doubt that it uses all different tools, political, military, economic, in order to achieve its political objectives. And its primary political objectives are clear to us because they call them their core national interests. And so Ambassador Shin and I did a study. And in that study, we found that in the over the last decade and a half, no African country, none, except for maybe Eswatini, which recognizes the ROC Taiwan, has gone against China on any of its core national interests, not the Uyghur issue, not the Hong Kong issue, not Xinjiang or South China Sea. In fact, you find repeated times when African countries countries are specifically uh, approving of China's, uh, you know, efforts on, you know, Hong Kong, for instance, a place that is very, very far flung from where they are. So the CPC, no doubt, uh, benefits uh, from the economics that we've been talking about here today. Um, that being said, I do believe that there is an, you know, an issue of viability, right? You cannot go on forever making losses on what you're doing, right? And I think that's what's you know, they've reached that moment, right? And that's why this small and beautiful and high quality is being touted. Because while you can win some political victories, you can't continue 
you know, a model where you're constantly losing money or barely breaking even. And I think that's a problem. Now, in terms of the debt trap issue, um, this is something that I, I thought quite a bit about because what I think has happened here is quite strange. We've got some people who are saying the debt trap. And actually, as far as I understand, this originated with like an Indian uh, expert who had used the term and then it got kind of caught on. And so it actually didn't originate in Washington. But in any case, it's been kind of taken on. And then you've got people who are saying, there is no debt trap. China's not trying to, right? And so they've got this, you know, and then they kind of struggle. But to me, there's a bit of straw man on both sides, to be honest with you, and a bit of kind of grandstanding on both sides, which is to say that in all of the interviews I ever did on BRI, never did any, did I get the opinion or, or the feeling that China wanted to not get its money back and therefore trap the country so it could take property, right? The goal was always to lend the money, get paid back, and have the political benefit, right? It, you know, it, again, it would not be viable to just continue to lend money and never get it back, right? That's not what China wanted to do with its reserves, right? Its reserves were making minimal returns under treasury bills at that point because interest rates were low. It wanted to get higher returns. It went to the global south. It thought it could do that with a variety of different you know, loan packages. Um, but ultimately, I don't think the goal was to not get paid back because that's the trap, right? The trap would suggest that you lend money to somebody where you don't think they're going to pay you back so you can take their equity or whatever you're looking for. And it also doesn't fit because, you know, when somebody goes bankrupt, the first people to get paid back are debt, not equity. So nobody would trade debt for equity. Equity makes you a part owner. It, it makes all the ownership problems yours. So I don't see the kind of logic in it from that perspective. So to me, the whole discussion was kind of neither here nor there because it didn't speak to the actual incentive structures that were put in place. And so um, to me, China wanted to get paid back and it's disappointed it didn't. And now it has to change its model. Right. And that suggests that there was no debt trap intention. Now, that does not mean that it may be in some cases China said, "Ooh, we've got an opportunity here where we have a bit of leverage because of the debt. Let's try to pursue a political goal that I'm sure has happened. I'm sure it's happened. Right. Is that a debt trap, though? I don't think so, because a debt trap suggests I set a trap for you intentionally. And I don't think that's what China was about. So anyway, that's my kind of take on the debt trap issue. One of the many things I've really enjoyed reading about in your work is the concept of relational power and the kind of long-term investments that Chinese actors have invested in, long-term relationships as in inviting people, you know, officials or students or media persons on study trips, funding um, PhD or master's uh, scholarships but also party-to-party -party exchange, the role of the CCP in cultivating, being a mentor for some of these young democracies or um, young states. And in the book, of course, you have many studies from, was it Ghana, from Ethiopia, but also South Africa, where we see that kind of long-term relationship having existed. And this is before China became rich or, you know, a middle-income country, right? So tell us a little bit about this concept of relational power and how it differs potentially from all the other stuff that we in the West try to do, which often is understood to be preaching, but not necessarily about building relationships. Yeah, no, this is a great question. Um, so 
you know, in, in some ways you could think of, or at least my, what I argue, is that this concept of relational power, which I'll get into in a moment, is operationalized through an institution called the International Department of the Communist Party of China, or IDCPC. So my argument is that this concept of relational power, which was created by uh, a Chinese political scientist named Qin Yaqing, um, which suggests that the way that China builds its foreign policy is essentially through interpersonal relationship building. Um, and so that those concepts that originate in Confucianism about the relationships among people and the responsibilities due to people because of relationships is then transferred and uh, projected outward through China's foreign relations. And so international relations are interpersonal relations is the way that one can think of it. And those interpersonal relations from a Chinese Confucian context, and this is kind of, uh, is, are all about the exchange of reciprocal exchange of favors um, or what Chinese call renqing. And so um, I would do you a favor, you know, and then you would return a favor to me with Juan And then in returning that, we would then build our relation. And every time we do a favor for each other and return a favor, our bonds get closer. And then maybe we start to do favors for each other on other aspects. And so our relationship gets broader as well. And then perhaps you might have a friend who I need a favor from. So through our relationship, through our Guanxi relations, I then ask you to ask your cousin or whomever to do a favor for me. And now I have a relation, I've borrowed on your relation to create a relational bond with them. And so it's this, it's this networking uh, concept where China, in this case, the, it's called the International Liaison Department, that's his other name, builds relations with African and other political parties from around the world in order to create interpersonal relationships with the leaders of political parties throughout the global south and in Africa in particular is what we go into in the book. Um, and so you can see patterns developing, who they're doing more with and how that uh, since Xi Jinping has taken over, they're doing far more of these. Uh, this prior to COVID, and they're hosting a lot more, and that's called host diplomacy. Um, and so China has a, a concept of host diplomacy. It's called Zhu Chang Wai Jiao in Chinese. And so the Chinese uh, approach to hosting is not unsystematic, right? You've, if you've been to China, if you've been on a delegation, the configuration of the chairs in a room, the way pe where people sit at a table, all of these things are, are, are hierarchical and ritualized to some degree. Um, and so this concept of relationality then helps to inform the work of the Communist Party of China's International Department. Now, here's the interesting thing. Two weeks ago, I was in China, hosted by the International Department of the Communist Party of China. And I got a chance to sit down with the person who works on Africa. And, and, and she read my work and she, she was very interesting because she said, while I think that this theory really does help to describe what we do, we don't actually think of the theory when we do what we do. Right. So that was kind of an interesting interaction, but um, this kind of interaction between policy or practice and this uh, theory of um, Chinese relationality and inter international relations. To what extent do you think this has had an impact? Because when I talk to a lot of my colleagues, they say, well, you know, some of these countries on the continent, they're just interested in the economic gain. It is trying to get China to build stuff and perhaps also increasingly maintain whatever has been built. But this talk about friendship or trying to learn from the Chinese experience, that has lesser resonance, that it is fine, you know, you're my friend, you know, you give me something. It becomes very transactional in exchange, but maybe 
one, one view would be that maybe it's the Chinese who hold these long-term gains or the benefit, the long-term benefits are something that maybe the Chinese put more emphasis on than the more short-term relationships that many of the leaders and people that the Chinese interact with and host are interested in. So, you know, as long as I'm in power, I'm friends with China, with India, with the West, when I'm out, my loyalty may not be to the same extent, perhaps, as the Chinese expect of me. So, so to what extent do you think this relational power, whether the Chinese um, explicitly or implicitly use it, how effective has it been? What has has it has it given China a better image, a softer image that it is caring for many of these countries, that it isn't as hard as selfish as the West is? Yeah. Well, I mean, the attractiveness of this and whether or not it's uh, going to have a long-term impact on these parties, I think we're going to find out pretty soon because China has built in Tanzania the Julius Nereri Party School with what it calls the six sister parties um, of sub-Saharan Africa, right? Um, and if memory serves, that's uh, ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe, uh, SWAPO in Namibia, uh, CCM in Tanzania, ANC in South Africa, um, uh, in Mozambique, uh, uh, um, I forget the Mozambique ruling party, um, and the uh, MDC in Angola, right? So they're, they're created, they've literally built on green earth this, this $40 million, uh, uh, basically a transplant of a Chinese party school into Africa. And they've created it, they've funded it, and they've built it. Um, and now they've kind of handed it over and it's in its first year of operation. And so we'll find out how attractive these governance strategies are. But here's what we know. When you go to China, they'll give you four books. They're called, you know, On Governance and they're by Xi Jinping. And he's now got four volumes. So they're definitely trying to share governance ideas. There's no doubt about it. The question of whether or not these countries are able to adapt or adopt those ideas, I think we're going to find out whether or not this Julius Nereri school uh, in five years, I think we need to, to circle back on that one. Um, but I definitely think, and this is part of relationality, the manipulation of relationships in order to have one's personal advantage. So um, even if these countries do not adopt Chinese governance methods, right, even if that kind of struggle between liberal democracy and whatever China's, you know, direct democracy, whatever they're calling it these days, right, even if that doesn't work, um, there's still this idea that through the relationships, you can gain advantage. Um, you can also gain an understanding and a transparency into the political systems of that country because, and this is in the writings, you can see they say because political parties have both depth in terms of they go down to the lowest levels within countries, and then they have breadth. They touch on topics across a whole range of issues. So engaging on a party to party basis, which is something very unique to China, you will not find even other socialist countries who are doing this at the level. I mean, North Korea does it, but not really at the same, nearly the same level. China is investing a lot in this. And I think it's because they believe it gives them a direct line in to the leadership, uh, no matter who's in power, right? And sometimes it doesn't work out, like in Ethiopia, when the EPRDF goes belly up, and then they got to scramble. But that's, but it's really a one-off. And in many cases, they're able to make quick transitions uh, between one party to another, as you read about in Ghana, you know, or have long-standing relations with the ANC 
So I, I do think that they are gaining something from this, whether or not the African parties gain from it or not in the long term, as you say, I think we're going to have to stay tuned and see. One of the strategies, one of the useful strategies for China has been to first actually align itself with a smaller coalition partner, a smaller party, and then gain you know goodwill with the major party of the coalition, whether it is Ethiopia or South Africa. Another thing that I enjoyed reading, and I wasn't really aware as much, even though I follow this particular topic, is how Beijing is now increasingly differentiating between different types of countries. So your major developing states newly emerging powers and other developing countries. So it's not like every country in the global South is given the same kind of importance. There are some of these hub states that get a lot of attention, right? In Southeast Asia, maybe it's Indonesia and Singapore and Thailand. In in South Asia, maybe is India and Pakistan. And of course, it has to be mentioned that India does not support the Belt and Road because China has a very close relationship with Pakistan. In Central Asia, it's Kazakhstan. In Africa, which is particularly interesting because the BRICS has been expanded now, it's Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and South Africa. Apart from Nigeria, the three others are part of the BRICS, the expanded BRICS. And there's considerable talk of how it is this, this expansion has actually benefited China more than any of the other original BRICS members. China seems to have these strategic hub states, some powers get more attention. And this is important because the typical criticism, at least from African countries, is that whatever China does is, as you said, it's very bilateral based on networks, relationships, but some countries tend to benefit more than others. So the so-called agency, African agency, the extent to which 54 countries can decide together in many of these platforms as to what China will or will not do is limited often to these big powers, maybe Ethiopia and Kenya and South Africa that get to dictate a lot more than the smaller states. So to what extent do you think these debates on increasing the voice of African countries so that it does not become China-Africa but more Africa-China relationships, the extent to which some of these countries can negotiate better deals. Do you think there's any hope in sight? Is it is it moving to that direction of this relationship being more equitable than this rather one-sided relationship that has existed so far, where China basically sets the agenda and everybody else comes to the table, but, but the table has been set and the menu has been decided beforehand? Yeah, and I like the way you put it at the end there. Um, I mean, what we see is really interesting. When China backs off from engagement during COVID, the engagements between China and Africa basically disappear, right? And what this tells us is that China is driving the engagements. China is funding the engagements. China is arranging it. China is, as you say, setting the menu, right? And so this agenda-setting power is really amazing, right? And in many ways, it kind of dictates a lot of what comes afterwards. But I, I would say that the way that I look at Afro, a lot of African countries, even some of the bigger ones, uh, problems with China in terms of uh, um, developing agency is that they face three types of asymmetry simultaneously, which is on the international level, they're far smaller than China um, in a myriad of ways, You know, military, economic, economy, serving on the UN Security Council, a hundred different ways China's bigger. Institutionally, the, the I, I can tell you, just 
the building of the International Department of the Communist Party of China is bigger than the, the, than the headquarters of any African political party in any country. So just one small part is bigger than the entire, uh, you know, any African political, it's bigger than the foreign ministry of Ethiopia by far and brand newer, right? So institutionally, you know, they've got basketball courts and ping pong tables. I mean, it's a it's a facility they've got out there, right? Um, they've also got five different training facilities all over the country. And then on the working level, you know, they usually, from what I've read, have like a three to one advantage when it comes to negotiations in terms of personnel. Right. And their informational asymmetry is also high. They've got a lot more knowledge and a lot more issues usually than, you know, especially on previous contracts they've done with others, um, which may or may not be proprietary information. So they come to the table with all of these advantages. And so it's not surprising that facing these, you know, slew of asymmetries, right? Because we can imagine a country like Singapore, for instance, which doesn't necessarily have institutional or working level asymmetry with China. But these African countries, generally speaking, have asymmetry on all of these levels, and it makes it very difficult to generate the kind of agency that one would need to be able to drive a bargain, especially when you don't really have anybody else at the table who wants to build your infrastructure. So you don't have much leverage in anyway. So I've seen a great document. I think her name is, uh, her last name is Sole, I believe, Foshida Sole. I'm probably mispronouncing her Ooh, name. Oh, uh, Fola Shej Sole. She's been on my show. Yeah, she talks so she, a lot about the the negotiating power of African countries. Yeah, yeah, and I saw she did something kind of uh, how to improve African countries' agency, and I really applaud that kind of effort. But I'm still dubious that, for example, creating a China unit in a small African country of people who have been to studied at and are essentially knowledgeable of China will necessarily give you the kind of the kind of leverage you need to overcome these massive asymmetries we've just discussed. So I think that there are things you could do to mitigate that you can improve. But I think that ultimately, when you're dealing with a country like China, which has all of these advantages, it can be really hard uh, to overcome them. And I think understandably so. Much of what we've talked about actually underscores the importance of bilateralism in in Chinese foreign policy. It's still networks. It's still about relationships. And yet we also see China engaging more and more actively in multilateral arenas. There is an attempt to shape or reshape the, the Western-dominated institutions, whether it is you know, having a chief economist in the World Bank of Chinese origin or senior UN officials. We've talked about FOCAC, which is very China driven. But in these other more international multilateral arenas, whether it is the G20 or UN or World Bank, IMF, World Trade Organization, what in your view are the sort of most important trends you see? Is it an attempt to fill some of these organizations with more Chinese nationals, which of course gets criticized, but I mean, come on, the West has dominated the U.S., of course, you know, has a lot of officials in these important positions. So it's not so unfair that China seeks greater representation as does many other countries. But where are we moving? Are we seeing the emergence of a new kind of multilateralism where China is seeking to upend or even subtly change things? Because one typical criticism from Beijing is that some countries, hint, hint, the U.S., is interested in unilateralism, but we, the Chinese, are interested in genuine involvement 
of all countries in a truly multilateral way. And that's why the United Nations gets a lot of attention in Beijing as the forum. You know, the U.S. tends to often downplay the role of the U.N. while China loves the U.N. So what are the uh, emerging trends you see in the multilateral space? Well, this is a, this is a great question, Dan. Really, you know, cutting to the heart of the matter here. So... Yes, I, I would say that this is a, a, an evolution. There was previous strategy China pursued under Hu Jintao, uh, Jiang Zemin, and Deng Xiaoping called, you know, it was summarized as bide your time and hide your capabilities, right? And under that approach, China was not trying to, as it was said, overturn the temple. Right, they was trying to be uh, a, what at the time American policymakers called a responsible stakeholder um, was going to be a, a like hold a stake in the the system. Okay, but under Xi Jinping, I do think we've seen an evolution where China is not only trying to create other institutions um, and uh, you know Chinese centric institutions. You mentioned the FOCAC, the Forum on China Africa Cooperation, but that's only one of several that China has created across the global South, including the SCO, um, what was called I think the sixteen plus one in Eastern Europe, the ASEAN plus one, a variety of different institutions that China has engaged with in order to engage entire regions of the world. Um, and in the FOCAC case, this is entirely funded by China, entirely China-driven. And, and, and so they set the, the menu, as you said before. Um, and so there's definitely a desire to create these institutions. However, in the book, we also go into the variety of existing African institutions at the sub-regional level, whether that be COMESA or ECOWAS or the EAF or, 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 or SADC in Southern Africa. And China engages all of those institutions as well. Right. Um, they have specific sometimes even a, a, a person whose entire job it is to just engage that particular African sub regional institution. And so that's a kind of a unique aspect of China Africa relations, which does speak to Chinese multilateralism. China also talks of what it calls the democratization of international relations, which is essentially what you were kind of referring to before. And this means I consider this a kind of Gulliver strategy, however, to constrain the U.S. ability to act unilaterally. And the BRICS is also part of this strategy, where you expand the BRICS and you essentially broaden the amount of countries that hold power in the international system. You try to intentionally create a multipolar world um, and drawing kind of um, maybe not power or you could consider it like uh, normative power from the United States. Um, and then you can use institutions like the UN in order to advance your interests. And you can also it, it change the the objectives of these institutions and the, you know, you can kind of strip out the liberalism from, so you, you alter the existing institutions to your liking, keeping all the platitudes and everything. And then you create a, a system of alternative institutions that you are among the leaders, if not the leader of. Um, and so in doing so, you create a kind of institute, uh, you institutionalize uh, uh, multilateralism, but you do so on your own terms. And as we talked about before, this is part of this concept of the community of shared future, right? Where you are creating institutions that ultimately expand China's relational power um, and do have China at the center of the world stage, as Xi Jinping calls it. There's so much talk in Washington about really taking on China in Africa. Is that going to happen? Is is Washington going to actually build stuff? And if so, again, there's so much talk about building back better infrastructure. The same with the European Union. We just hear talk. 
But is there going to be action? Do you think there will be competition at the ground level that Washington will actually stop preaching and talking and actually start doing stuff such as building, you know, buildings and, and roads and bridges that many of these countries really want and need? And the short answer is no, not a chance. Um, the United States is not doing enough, in my opinion, to build our own infrastructure, although I do applaud the administration passing an infrastructure bill. So no, American infrastructure is not going to come to Africa anytime soon. And given the results of the BRI, you'd be hard pressed to turn to American banks and Wall Street and say, you should go ahead and, and underwrite the stuff. So no, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, however, and the news isn't all gloomy. Because there's, you know, people have talked in Washington, you know, the USIP and others for a long time about how to, how can the US and China cooperate in Africa? And the, the short answer, as I've kind of come to recognize is we can't. We do very different things in very different ways. However, that doesn't mean we have to come into conflict in Africa, because fundamentally, I do believe that China is teaching governance lessons to Africa because it wants African countries to be more reliable partners, better governed countries, you know, less corrupt in their dealings uh, for a variety of reasons. I would like to see sustainable governments, not coup d'etats all over the place. And I think the U.S. would broadly agree with that. Whereas other actors, perhaps the Russians, would not. Maybe they would benefit from more chaos on the continent, right? And the French might want to continue to pursue their France-Afrique aspirations. So the, the point is, I do see that ultimately the U.S. and China have kind of maybe very different roads to get to a kind of similar place where they want Africa to be a stable partner that they can engage with going forward. Now, how that comes about, I think they have different visions. But the good news is I don't think we have to come into conflict in Africa. This doesn't have to be a U.S.-China battle for Africa. In many ways, when you're around, and I haven't spent much time on the continent compared to you, of course, but you hear American soft power. You see American soft power. You don't see Chinese soft power at the grassroots level, but China has a good game from above. Meanwhile, both the United States uh, major political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, neither one of them has Africa anywhere near the top of the priority list. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to put it anywhere near but the bottom. And so while it's come up under the Biden administration from the basement, it's still on the ground floor, shall we say. And so the U.S. has not put the kind of engagement, the kind of money, the kinds of strategic thinking into engaging Africa uh, that China has. So, But we do have this great soft power. We have the diaspora communities. We've got you know, NBA. We've got African-American communities. Um, you know, We've got a whole bunch of uh, aspects that are attractive to especially the youth of the continent. So I don't see the U.S. and China having to come into conflict. And, uh, and one other point, uh, let me add here at the end to kind of drive this home. I saw the, the data from uh, our friends at um, Afrobarometer. And you can see that both the US and China have fallen off substantially between 2019 and 22, about 11% on the 32 country uh, average that they have. But what's interesting is when you put them together, you see a strange correlation develop, which suggests that if one sours on America, one sours on China and vice versa. So this doesn't suggest the kind of zero-sum game that a lot of people in Washington and Beijing would like to portray, that if we kick dirt all over each other, we'll just bring both of ourselves down. And perhaps people, you know, just look at us both as foreigners. So we don't necessarily have to think that every engagement is about a zero-sum game. It can also be about simply trying to, you know, achieve what we'd both like to as a more stable, uh, better governed and better partners in Africa. Josh, congratulations on this excellent book. I very much enjoyed reading it and it was lovely to see you. Thanks for coming on my show today. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Dan. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at GlobalDevPod and Dan Bannock. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo. Please email your questions, comments and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.